0: We've been in a series called Cross Encounter, and each week we're looking at a different character that encountered the actual cross that Jesus died on. The first week, we looked at the Roman centurion who oversaw the execution of Jesus. He was there through the whole day watching Jesus as he endured the suffering on the cross, and he came to the conclusion that this surely was the Son of God. Last week, we looked at a man who had no idea what he was getting into when he came to town that day. But he was pulled into the crucifixion story when he was commanded by the Roman soldiers to pick up the cross for Jesus and to carry it to the hill of Golgotha. And his two sons followed behind him as he walked up that pathway. And we learn from that picture something we all are called to do, to pick up our crosses and to follow Jesus. It was really exciting last week because several people came up just wanting to surrender fully. They'd never fully understood that to... It's not just us asking Christ into our lives. It's, for, it's us surrendering our whole lives to him, being willing to lay it all on the line. And the last service um, last week, four people came forward and said they wanted to give their lives to Christ fully that moment. And so we actually had a little baptism service after church last Sunday, and four people were were baptized about 12.30 in the afternoon and tears in their eyes and joy in their heart. And I don't know where you are spiritually, but if you come to a place today where you want to do that, we will hang around as long as we need to after service. We'll baptize you today. Um, it's Palm Sunday weekend, a great day to do that if you want to be baptized. If you need to surrender part of your life to Christ, we'll have prayer partners up here who will listen to you, who pray over you, who will help you take that next step in your spiritual journey. Now, we're in a season, um, culturally, it's called March Madness. You guys know what that is? If, if you're into college sports, it is the most exciting sporting period um, in, in the whole calendar year. Uh, College kids who are just playing their hearts out, and they call it March Madness because it truly is madness when you watch these no-name uh, teams that have players you've never heard of rise up, kind of like David's versus Goliaths, and they knock off these powerhouses who who are favored to win. And that happens every year. It happened Thursday. It happened Friday. In fact, Friday night I, I was watching late night, and the school that Kurt Warner, the quarterback, uh, graduated from, Northern Iowa, is playing against Texas, and. The clock's ticking. It's getting down to the very end. A player grabs the ball and heaves this chest throw from midcourt, and the the, the ball bounces off the backboard as the buzzer sounds. It it clearly goes through the hoop. They win. The place goes crazy. Fans pour out onto the the floor, and it's pandemonium. That is March Madness. Buzzer beaters galore during March Madness. When I think of, of Scripture, there is one story that I would call the buzzer beater. It's a story of a man who had nothing left in his life but breath to give one last desperation prayer. But the good news was he had enough air in his lungs to make that one dramatic request for a second chance. And Jesus granted it. You know, when you go through Scripture, you read... All kinds of stories of people who got second chances, from the tax collectors who spent their lives cheating people, getting a new beginning, to the prostitutes who were so messed up in their lives that, that Jesus gave them hope, to this man we're going to read about today. And many of you will find yourself in the story of this man because you've lived a life that really isn't that pleasing to the Lord. You're not really proud of the journey you've, you've uh, walked in your life. You're not, you're not excited about the legacy you've left for your children. When people look to you, they don't see the model of faithfulness to God. But you need to know this. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is time on the spiritual clock to throw up one last desperation prayer to Jesus. And I'm telling you this. He comes through every time. Some of you may be in that place today. You're going to learn about the grace of Christ in a new way. See, grace is this. Grace means I don't get what I deserve, but I accept what Jesus offers. And so, as we look at this story today, that epitomizes the grace of Jesus Christ, I want you to do this. Would you pray that God would speak to your heart, that he would strip away maybe the the misunderstanding of what grace is and maybe the, the misconceptions about what it means to be right in God's eyes and let the scripture speak to you today. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful story of grace. May it, tug at our hearts and take us down a path of confidence and hope and eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start with the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "'You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days,' What I find in this story, as we go through it, is just, it's a story of contrast. We have two rebels on either side of Jesus, two convicted criminals sandwiching the sinless, blameless Lamb of God, and the differences couldn't be greater. These men who've, who lived their lives in defiance of God's laws, who were thieves, contrast to the man who was the submissive son to his heavenly father. These men grew up as takers, grasping things that belonged to other people. And Jesus himself was the ultimate giver. Not taking from people, but actually giving to people what they truly needed. We hear from the lips of these men ugly, perverse insults toward Jesus. And they're not alone. There's a whole crowd of people doing that. The, the people passing by are, are insulting Jesus. The religious leaders are mocking Jesus. And these rebels, it says, heaped insults. It's almost as if there's a fight going on, and Jesus turns to one side, and there's a blow from the right, and then he's a blow from the left, a cutting words from these two men. And meanwhile, what does Jesus do? He speaks words of compassion, kindness, and forgiveness to those who crucify him. Father, forgive them, for they're clueless about what they're doing. But as the day wore on, one of those thieves begins to experience a change of heart. And we read about that as we jump over to Luke's account. It says in chapter 23, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. I want to talk about the contrast here. The contrast we see in these three people that are hanging on crosses. On the one hand, we have a man that I would call the proud sinner. The proud sinner, he... he, knows nothing of his own sin. All he does is focusing on Jesus and accusing him. If you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. I have to tell you, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life is owning up to your sin. One of the greatest struggles you'll ever have is to admit you were wrong. You you do that in marriage, do that in parenting, do that in your jobs, because we have uh, a desire to defend ourselves and justify ourselves. And you know what keeps us from acknowledging our sin? Pride. Pride and sin go together really well. In in, in fact, it was pride that caused the downfall of Satan. Satan was a beautiful angel at one time, and and God created him to worship him. And yet Satan wanted to rise up and be like God. And, And we find this pattern throughout history of not only in the Bible, but in our culture of leaders, of public figures who rise up in pride and and they're brought low. At the middle of pride, at the heart of pride, at the heart of sin is the letter I. And that's really the heart of what sin is. It's all about me. It's about myself. It's not about God. Pride blinds us to our faults. We end up excusing them, justifying them, blaming others for them. And we actually think God owes us something good. Come on, God, save us. You owe it to us. And if something bad happens to us, do you owe taking away from us? Haven't you ever done that in prayer? God, why are you doing this to me? As if God owes us something. God owes us a healthy body. God owes us a a great marriage. God owes us financial prosperity. Does he? What have we done to deserve that? I was watching a political analyst the other day, and, and after the third super, super, super Tuesday, he said, He said, You know what's ironic? is the two most popular candidates, the one from either party that's the most, most got the most votes, is actually the least liked in either party? They got the most votes, but they're the least liked. Nobody likes either candidate. And he was asked, so what do they need to do to change that over the months to come? And he says, you know what would go a long way? If, if both of them would just admit, to some degree, they've been wrong. See, it's hard to acknowledge your sin. And, and I think it's because we, especially in our culture, grow up kind of feeling self-righteous. Honestly, I grew up thinking I was a pretty good kid. I grew up with good American values. I was a decent kid. The teachers liked me. I didn't go to the principal's office more than three or four times in elementary school. Um, if we were to, to grade ourselves on the high school curve, most of us would say, like, you know, I'm I may not be A plus, but I'm definitely A or A minus material. And surely, if God's looking for the the cream of the crop to take into heaven, I would make the cut. Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is this, that we think God grades on a curve, that God has this this kind of magical number that if you can rise above it in your morality and your goodness, that you'll qualify. Here's another problem. We, We think that we are the ones that are on the top level. But the bad news is this, God doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass-fail. you know how you pass? Keep his commandments. you know how you fail? Break any of them. Dishonor your parents. Worship a false god. Take the Lord's name in vain. Envy your neighbor. Tell a lie. You, you and I have, have failed not just once, twice. We are perpetual failures when it comes to our worthiness. In fact, if the Bible were to describe our condition, and I'm just going to be very honest with you, here's, here's the biblical analysis from Romans 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even how many? One. Not even one. We've all fallen short of God's expectations. And all of us go down this path of starting off as proud sinners. But the second man, the second thief, he had to change. He became a penitent sinner. Early in the day, he was bashing Jesus like everyone else. But after literally hanging around Jesus all day, he came to this conclusion. This guy is different. That he'd never met anybody quite like Jesus. And here's what happened: the more he saw the beauty and the goodness of Jesus, the more he saw the darkness in his own life. I found that true in my life. I I grew up going to church sporadically. Definitely I was there every Easter, every Christmas. and, And honestly, most of the Sundays in between I went to church. But I have to tell you that I didn't really come to terms with my sins until I was in high school. I thought I was a pretty good kid. I thought. That if God looked at me, I was one of the A players on his team. But as I started to learn about Jesus in high school through my youth group, I began to realize Jesus was greater and I was less. And all of a sudden, I I started to see my pride and my envy and my greed and my lust and all these bad things within me. Now, I don't know what you do when the skeletons in your closet are exposed. And everyone has their, has their skeletons. If people look deep enough in your life, they will find your skeletons. And we think that those athletes and politicians, movie stars are different when they're exposed for their embezzlement or their extramarital affairs or their drug use. But honestly, if someone followed us around 24-7 and examined all of our decisions and, and listened to everything we said, they'd find a lot of dirt. So what do you do? Do you defend it? Do you deny it? Or do you own up to it? Repentance begins when we own up to our sin. And God looks at us and wants us to understand how badly we need forgiveness. Because you don't know you need forgiveness until you understand the sin in your life. It wasn't until I understood how dark my soul was that I began to cry out, God, now I get this whole cross thing. Now I understand why I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that God allows you time and opportunity to repent. Repent to turn in your thinking, which then in, turns in the direction of your life. Second Peter 3, 9 gives us this picture of, of God. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If, if you ask, why has God kept me alive, it may be for this reason, that you would have time to say yes to him. The reason Jesus hasn't returned, and I I know he's as eager to return as we are for him to return, might be this. There is someone in your life who's yet to make their decision, and and he's putting a little more time on the clock for them. That's why it's so critical you invite someone to come Easter. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know how much time they have. Proud sinners, penitent sinners, and in between them is a third cross, and on that cross is a patient Savior who's not willing that any perish, He's perfect. He doesn't need to seek forgiveness. He's not even really dying on the cross for his sins. He's dying on the cross for their sins, for our sins. But isn't that good? That someone loves us enough to do that? In First John chapter two, it says, "My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin." That's, a, that's God's goal. But if anyone does sin, any of you fall in that category? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but get this, also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the advocate. He is the the lawyer, in a sense, that stands before God and says, Father, don't look at what they've done. Look at what I've done. Look at what I did on the cross, and my blood was shed for them. It is an atoning sacrifice, meaning it totally covers all of the effects of your sin, all the consequences of your sin, all the judgment for your sin was put on Christ at the cross. That's why it's amazing, and it's called grace. Grace means I get what I don't deserve. But it also means that I receive what he offers. See, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Three crosses. Proud sinner, penitent sinner, patient savior. I want to ask you, which one do you identify with? I can tell you this, none of us identify with the middle cross. We are not saviors. So which kind of sinner are you? The proud, defiant, defensive one who expects Jesus to do something because he owes it to you? Or the penitent one who says, Jesus, I don't deserve anything. I'm the one who deserves judgment and punishment. And that person, that man, finds hope. Finds a future. In fact, he makes three confessions that I think um, tell us what it means to surrender a life to Jesus Christ. If you want to get right with God, you make these three confessions. The story goes on to tell us, tell us about these confessions. I wonder what this thief was thinking about as he hung there on the cross. I mean, think about it. I don't know if he's married. If he has kids, but I think he'd go back in his life and say, "You know what." I wish I would have listened to my parents years ago. I wish I wouldn't have hung around to that bad group. I wish I would have set a better example for my kids. I wish people would remember me in a different light. But he can't. He can't go back and rewrite the past. But here's what he could do. That every breath he has left going forward, he could give to the Lord. So that's what he does. He's already made the first confession. Yes, I have sinned. Because I'm getting what I deserve. As a a young boy, my dad shifted from swatting us with the belt when we were bad to giving us cod liver oil. Now, I don't know which is worse. Because have any of you ever had cod liver oil? It is the nastiest. If any of you like it, you're crazy. It is awful tasting stuff. Think of stinky fish, and then you're drinking it. And it stays on your tongue and on your throat, and you taste it all day long. You burp it up. It is awful stuff cod liver oil and my dad didn't have to do it out of anger which is why he stopped using the belt he would just smile and say open wide and give us a spoonful of cod liver oil but i have to admit every time i got it i deserved it i had it coming to me i can't argue with the punishment that i had received because it was the just punishment for my sins in first john first chapter it says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. That's a cleansing. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, for the longest time, when I read that verse, I heard people explain it like, you know, confessing your sins means you tell God you're sorry. That's not what it says. Now, hopefully you're sorry for that. But confession is an admission. Confession means to own up to the truth. So if you are guilty of a crime, and you confess to it, all you're saying is, yeah, I did it. That's the, that's the reality. I did it. I own it. That was me. Confessing to our sins means, God, I did it. I own it. That was me. That was me who was angry. That was me who was lustful. That was me uh, who was hurtful. That was me. I made the choice. I deserve to be punished for that. But he says if you come to that realization and you confess it, admit it before the Lord, his blood is effective in cleansing us from that. You can turn one of two directions when you see the weight of your sin. You can be overcome by the shame, the guilt of it. You can, you can beat yourself up and say, you know, I'm just a loser. I keep falling. I keep going back into this sin. This, this addictive behavior has a stronghold on me. I keep going back, and nobody should love me because I'm unworthy. You, know, you can wallow in the guilt and shame, which honestly is just, just another act of selfishness because it's all about you. Woe is me. Well, it was me. God gets no glory in that. You can turn inward, but God gets no glory in that. Where God gets the glory is when your eyes turn away from self up to him and say, God, I am bad. I am awful. I've been, I've been cruel and mean. But you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so forgiving. You are my only hope. Because this thief, when you think about it, he started the day mocking Jesus. He's ending the day marveling at Jesus and his grace, and his compassion. And I find it fascinating that of all the people who could speak up for Jesus, it wasn't his disciples, it wasn't his own mother, it wasn't the religious leaders who had all the Old Testament prophecies about him. The first person to publicly speak up for Jesus is this thief who says, this dude, he's done nothing wrong. This guy's done nothing wrong. He's speaking up for Jesus. He doesn't even, he doesn't even know much about Jesus, but he knows there's something different about him. And so he has a hunch. And he puts up a last second prayer. And this is the most amazing prayer in Scripture. He said in Luke 23, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I wonder how he knew his name. He he, he probably just met him there on the cross. Maybe he heard people yelling it out, but if that man was Jewish, he knew what the name Jesus meant. Jesus is is the comparison of the Old Testament name Joshua. Both of those names mean the same thing. The Lord delivers. The Lord delivers. He recognizes the fact that Jesus is not ordinary, but that he's royalty. And if you think back, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate Pilate was point blank. Are you a king? Jesus said, yes, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so after the soldiers stripped him, beat him, they put a purple robe around him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and they began to mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. They fell on their faces before him. And then they struck him with their staffs. They spit on him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would hate to be one of those that spit on Jesus to stand before God. One day. When he was nailed to a cross, they actually put a sign over Jesus' head. It was written in three different languages, the most common languages known to that community, Hebrew and and Greek and Aramaic, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, some of the religious leaders were upset. They said, it should say he said he was King of the Jews, but this, this guy's looking at Jesus, and he's got to wonder, if they think this guy's insane, why are they so mad at him? You don't get, you don't get angry at insane people, do you? You don't go to a, 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 an old facility where, where people are insane and get mad. You, get, you just kind of roll with it and you, you brush them aside. But these guys are actually angry at Jesus. And this guy watching says, why is he getting all this attention? This king, this king of the Jews. I have to tell you kind of a funny story. I'm going to just change directions a little bit. When, when, um, when our son was little and went to Sunday school, uh, he probably soaked up a lot of those biblical stories. So, so here he is at breakfast. He's about five or six years old. My wife pours him a, a glass of orange juice, and he holds it up and says, Mom and Dad, Jesus was king of the juice. <laughs> so I'm just telling you, when your kids are in Sunday school, things stick with them. Just things. Now, I have to tell you another little story. Uh, This happened this week. My grandson was sitting on my lap, looked at a picture, a rendering someone made of Jesus. And Jim Vaughn, you gave me this little picture. I have it in my office at home of a of a painting. A little girl named Akiana, who said she saw Jesus in a vision, painted this. My two-year-old grandson looks at the picture. I've never told him about that picture. He looks up and says, "Jesus." I said, "What'd you just say? How how did you know that?" You know, our kids have the ability to understand things oftentimes much better than we do much earlier that's why it's so critical we expose them to the stories of scripture to the jesus of scripture but this man's concluding even though everyone else is sarcastic calling him king he says i really think he is a king and a king is just another word for lord he is confessing that yes jesus is lord and whether you admit it or not one day scripture says you will philippians chapter 2 it says that after Jesus rose from the dead, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, every tongue is going to do that. Every knee is going to bow. Every eye is going to see him. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and King. And either you'll do it joyfully because he's your king and you made that decision on earth while you were alive, or you'll do it regretfully in separation from him. But you will acknowledge what is true. Jesus is king. So getting right with God starts with confessing our sin. And then it moves to confessing Jesus as Lord. But there's another thing to get us right with God, and it's confessing that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, this man doesn't doesn't know that yet. Jesus hasn't actually risen from the grave. But understand this. When he said Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom? What he's saying is, you're not going to die. You're going to come off this cross and go somewhere that's glorious. I know that. Not even death is going to hold you back. So in a sense, he's already acknowledging the fact that Jesus has victory over the grave. Now, we who live on the other side of the resurrection, that is something the Scripture says that we have to believe with all our heart. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 it says, If you you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Now, I I wouldn't have believed Jesus' response to this man when he requested that he be remembered when Jesus went into his kingdom. It it seemed like such an outrageous request that the only thing more outrageous was the answer. Because in my opinion Jesus should have said really? You? You? Of all people? Or how about, how about this? Now? Really? Now? Why didn't you do this like three years ago, two years ago? Why now? You're, you're never going to go to church, buddy. You're never going to go win anybody to the Lord. You're never going to lead a Bible study. Man, it's a waste. Now. No way. Or actually, you know what I think Jesus would have done? I, if, if I were Jesus and someone says, hey, buddy, could you remember me when you go into the grand kingdom? <laughs> That's a good one. Right? He has has nothing to base his request on except this. Maybe there's enough grace for me. I know I don't deserve it, but this guy is a king and he's handing out grace and forgiveness to people. And I think the greatest miracle on that day is not not the, the sky turning black or the temple curtain being torn in two or the earthquake. The thing most amazing is that this guy who lived a whole life in defiance of God at the very last minute in a buzzer beating prayer is given his ticket to the eternal ball. And we go, That's not fair. That's just not right. And it isn't. That's why it's not called fair, it's called grace. And here's here's the lesson that you and I need to learn. It's such a big lesson, and many of us church people have trouble getting this. You do not qualify for heaven because of any behaviour. You qualify because of belief. Who Jesus is, what he did for us on the cross. And it starts with acknowledging that we need him, that we have sinned and fallen short. And I know for a fact that if you lived your life, and you may be 80 years old sitting here today, I have watched people in this church at the at the last quarter, maybe the last few minutes of their life, say, Do you know what? I'm laying down my pride and I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus because I know I've, I've messed up. I know that I don't deserve it, but if he's offering it, I want it. And you may think it's unfair that this man got in at the last second, but I'll tell you this. The rest of his life, he lived a life of faith. It may have only been hours. It may have only been minutes. But he lived it for the Lord. That's the key. A new beginning starts, and you walk by faith. God gives you 80 years in front of you, 10 years, or maybe one day, live it for Jesus.